Welcome to Regenerative of Medicine today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Richard Schaub. Dr. Schaub is an assistant professor in the Department of Bioengineering, and he's the senior director of the Artificial Heart Program at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and also the senior director of Mechanical Circulatory Support at ProCirca. Dr. Schaub, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you for having me. So... Let's talk a little bit about this uh, whole subject of artificial heart and mechanical circulatory support. I know that there's been tremendous strides made in this regard. I recall that you and your colleagues are actually celebrating the 30th anniversary of the first mechanical circulatory support implant uh, here in Pittsburgh. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the program, please. So our program is unique amongst similar programs in the country because we are centered around using bioengineers as the primary caregiver to the patients being supported by these devices. Most centers throughout the country utilize nurses and NPs to deliver that care, but we early on decided that engineers had a unique ability to interpret the technology and act as liaisons with the surgeons and with the cardiologists to interpret what's going on with the pump and how that affects the physiology of the patient. So I think we've developed that model, and that model has now been adopted at a number of other centers throughout the country. Most of them from graduates from our program actually have gone on to start these programs. But I think the model is, is certainly has some benefits, especially when it comes to using innovative technologies and to performing research in this field to advance the therapy. So let's step back one more step. And uh, basically, we're talking about the use of left ventricular assist devices primarily. Is that correct? You're correct. Primarily devices to support a failing left ventricle. But we do also have devices that are specific to the right ventricle. And then we also have devices that take over function of the entire heart or a total artificial heart. So we do utilize all three, but by far the left ventricular assist device is the most common. And so these are typically used as a bridge to a transplant, but uh, I re- believe in some cases you've actually used these devices as a bridge to recovery. Correct. For many years, bridge to transplantation was the primary indication for these pumps. But I would say in the past 10 years or so, destination therapy or alternative to transplant has become a reality. The reason that that has come to be is that the technology has advanced to the point where the adverse events are not as as common as they used to be. The durability of the devices is much better. And also the usability of the devices allows patients to learn how to care for their device and be discharged home safely where they can live either while they're waiting for a transplant or, as I said, as an alternative to transplant and basically have the device for the rest of their lives. So let's spend a moment on the technology. I recall an occasion when I had a podcast with Dr. Borovitz some time ago, and he talked about the uh, the initial device and the support mechanism for it. If I recall correctly, he had a photograph that showed the uh, support system that was about the size of a washing machine. Now I believe they're a lot smaller. Can you tell us what the current configuration is? Yeah, the early devices were mostly driven with pneumatics. So to deliver the pressure needed to pump the blood, we needed compressors, and compressors were usually large and required large 
batteries and power sources. We've now moved to more of an electrical-based system, and they're usually now blood is being pumped by impellers. And the impellers can either be axial or centrifugal in design, and the electronics needed to drive those pumps is very much smaller. Some of them are the size of iPods now and can be placed in the, in the front pocket, you know, in your shirt pocket. And the battery technology is also advanced with lithium ion and nickel metal hydride to the point where smaller batteries can actually support the pump for up to 10 or 12 hours. And patients can go on to battery in the morning and not have to worry about changing their batteries until after dinner. And this really has been an advance that has allowed patients to assume more of a normal lifestyle. They can go back to work, take up most activities, and that's really been a huge advantage when it comes to the quality of life and, and really the acceptance of this therapy by cardiologists and surgeons alike. So I've actually had uh, uh, patients uh, in this office with their VAD waiting for the heart transplant. I agree with you, they seem to have a fairly normal quality of life and uh, a lot of mobility and ease of uh, getting around. It's amazing the progress that's been made in this regard. Let's talk a little bit about what you and your colleagues do. You mentioned that you use bioengineers as the uh, core staff to uh, support these implants. So there's a decision made to do an implant where the surgeon was going to proceed. How does your team get involved? We maintain an engineer on call you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And if a surgeon decides that one of the ventricular cyst devices is necessary for the treatment of the patient, he pages that number and we mobilize immediately. We actually keep someone in-house. Sometimes it's a junior engineer, and those engineers are usually graduate students at the University of Pittsburgh in the School of Engineering in one of the departments. But we have equipment. We maintain all of the equipment and all of the components that are necessary for the implantation procedure. And as soon as we get word that there is going to be an implantation, we mobilize to either the operating room or to the catheterization lab and bring all the necessary equipment. Once we're there, it is our responsibility to prepare the equipment, calibrate, do the setup that is necessary. And then as the procedure proceeds, we actually take part in implementing the support of the pump. Sometimes we scrub in in the OR, sometimes we are just handing off equipment, but we work directly with the cardiologist or the surgeon to get the pump in place and then to transition onto support of the pump. And then once the pump is on, our primary responsibility is to optimize the benefit that the patient receives from the pump. So we maintain someone in-house 24 hours a day that continuously rounds on these patients. They're available via pager if there's alarms or problems that the nurse may notice on the units. And again, we are there as the primary support for that patient from that point on. As you said, this is a, a fairly unique arrangement, but I think you also said the other centers are now adopting the, the bioengineering approach. Is that correct? That's correct. The difference, again, that we still maintain a little bit of uniqueness, and our uniqueness is the relationship with the School of Engineering. As I mentioned before, we employ a number of graduate and undergraduate engineers to help us take care of these patients in the off hours, the evenings, the nights, the weekends. And no other center that I know of has that quadri of engineering students 
that are trained to be experts in the technology that are available to provide that 24-hour care that we have here. So i tell you a story. I had the pleasure of talking to one of your team who was a graduate student here and uh, asked uh, this individual why he came to this program. His response was that this is probably no other place in the world he could have gotten the experience and the training he had an opportunity to receive here. So I think it's a credit to you and your your colleagues that uh, you provide these unique training opportunities. I certainly think it's a, a symbiotic relationship. We get the benefit of having very dedicated and intelligent employees that are there for more than just a paycheck. They're there because they're very interested in the technology. They want to help the patients. They're, they're very vested into our program and to our patient population. I think the students get the benefit of a unique experience that they can go out and talk about during interviews, and I think that really sets them apart from other candidates. We have graduates from our program at pretty much every major manufacturer of these devices. We have graduates in the, at the FDA, and we have graduates that have gone on to academia and, as I said before, started their own similar programs at other VAD centers throughout the country. So do you employ just graduate students or do you employ undergraduates as well? We do employ a few undergraduates. They don't have quite the responsibilities as the grad students have, but we do find that by including the undergraduates, we maintain a relationship with that student population. And a lot of times, those undergraduates end up being students that go on to graduate school or on to medical school, and they stay with us when possible. And then we have a very experienced then employee that's, that's very beneficial to us. So if, in fact, uh, there's potential students that are listening There are possible opportunities to get involved in this program if they come to the University of Pittsburgh. We usually have a hiring cycle two or three times a year. One of the things about having students help us out so much is students graduate and students move on, which is a good thing. But we end up having to replace those graduating students, like I said, two to three times a year. So we have open positions, and we try to advertise as much as we can in in, in the school but we certainly would be happy to have as many applicants as possible, and we would be happy to talk to anyone who's interested in potential employment with us at any time. Very good. So let's talk a little bit about the magnitude and the longevity of the program. As I mentioned before, I think you recently celebrated the 30th anniversary of the, uh, the first implant. What else is on the list of milestones? So as you said, we we had our first implant in October of 1985, so we just passed that 30th anniversary. We are also quickly approaching our 1,000th patient that we have supported, and that should happen within the next six months or so. So we do have quite a history of support using many different technologies, all the way back from the original total artificial heart that was devised by Dr. Jarvik, up until some of the newest devices that are available today. We've had the benefit of having surgeons that have always looked for newer technologies and improvements in the technology. So that keeps us, I think, on the cutting edge of of the support that we can provide to these patients. And as engineers, we find that to be one of the most rewarding parts of the job is we are learning new things all the time. We are using new devices. And, and I think that keeps our minds fresh and, and keeps us eager to continue to learn. 
So if I recall correctly, there was another milestone. It was uh, 25 years uh, that the first VAD patient was uh, discharged and was able to live outside the hospital. I can remember that. I was actually a student employee of the Artificial Heart Program at the time this event occurred. And it was quite an event because before that, patients on these devices were stuck in the hospital. The size of, of the machines that ran the devices, the general condition of the patients was not such that they could leave the hospital. So Dr. Cormos and at the time Dr. Griffith, who was here, um, really pushed for changing that. And it required a lot of planning. We worked closely with Family House, which is still affiliated with the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and they were designing a new family house at the time, and they took a lot of our input into consideration when designing that house so it was electrically and safety-wise able to support patients on these devices. So when the new family house was opened, the next hurdle was convincing the FDA to allow us to discharge a patient with one of these devices, and that was a hurdle that Dr. Cormos and Dr. Griffith handily accepted, and they overcame that hurdle, and we finally were able to, to transport a patient on one of these washing machine-sized devices to Family House, which is in North Oakland, and the patient lived there for a few months before a suitable donor organ was found. He was successfully transplanted and is actually still with us today doing very well. He has a family. He's one of our longest surviving patients, and it was quite a success story. So, and as we said before, the technology has uh, matured significantly over the last 25 years. I've had patients uh, with VADs here in the office. We've met them at the shopping malls and, and so forth. So, again, progress continues to be made in that regard. Yeah, it's amazing to see patients after receiving the device, so they go through major cardiac surgery to receive these devices, some of those patients leave the hospital within seven days. Thinking back to the early days of the program, that was unheard of. Um, at that time, one month was kind of the best that we could hope for for discharge following implantation. And again, we're down to about, I would say the average is between one to two weeks, unless there are major complications. So that, again, is a testament to the advances in the technology and in the advances with the medical side, with the surgeries, have become much less invasive. And the surgeons have become much more adept at, at implanting these devices. So recovery times are naturally shorter. I think education, we've improved on the ability to educate patients and their family members to take care of these devices. All of that together has allowed us to get these patients home as quickly as possible, and that really improves quality of life. No one wants to be stuck in the hospital, and the sooner they can get home, the healing process actually accelerates once they're home. They get home cooking, they have their own bed to sleep in. Patients do so much better once they're at home. So that's our goal is to really get the patients out as soon as possible. So speaking of patients, I know there's uh, different devices for adults and, and children. I assume that you support uh, both types of applications? We do. Our team also supports all of these devices that are implanted at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. So when we have a, a patient at Children's, it used to be easy to support both because Children's used to be attached to Presbyterian, but now it's in Lawrenceville, so it's, it's a little bit more difficult. We have to employ two teams, basically, when we have a, a patient at both sites. 
supporting children's has its own challenges. It also has its own rewards. Children are, you know, the, the situations are usually desperate. They don't use these devices full-heartedly. They, they only use them when absolutely necessary. So usually families are very fragile and upset about the condition of their children. So dealing with them is sometimes a challenge. But when there's success, um, it's very rewarding to see pediatric patients get to transplant or that are able to be weaned off the devices and go home with their families. And that really provides a unique experience for our engineers, and, and most of them find that to be one of the most rewarding things that they experience with us. So, Dr. Schaub, I appreciate you joining us today and sharing the pioneering work that you and your colleagues have been involved in. We look forward to uh, continued progress in the support of cardiac uh, cases with uh, mechanical circulatory support. And as I conclude this podcast, I remind our listeners that we welcome suggestions. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And I thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. Until we join together on another podcast, best wishes to our listeners. <music>